Welcome to our Frontline City Church podcast. This message will activate and inspire you in the supernatural love of God to find your purpose and reach your destiny through Christ. Okay, right. There was a song or a, a movie or something many years ago called To Dream the Impossible Dream. Who here has an impossible dream? Who here has had impossible dreams? Now, I know some of you had impossible dreams at one stage and you just decided it's never going to happen, it's impossible. I won't dream again. Can anybody relate to that? You don't allow yourself to dream. Well, I just want to tell you right now, I've come to turn that upside down. Amen. Amen. I want to tell you the story about Joseph. Now, you all know the story of Joseph. But I'm going to take you on a journey with me. And we're going to do a little bit different. Genesis chapter 37. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Now, Jacob, from verse 3, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So, <sighs> Joseph was the favorite. Okay? Have you ever had a sibling that was a favorite? Or the boss had a favorite? Or the pastor had the favorite? <laughs> You're the daughter in love. Okay. So one day J Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. They couldn't say a kind word. Now, yeah, you get the story of Joseph's identity being established as the father's favorite. And he gets the robe. And possibly in today's terms, it could be that Maserati, you know, a Bugatti. Hey? Does anybody know cars? Connor, a Bugatti? Hey, we can do that, you know. So his brothers were jealous of him. And I can imagine Joseph must have thought, yeah, I've got it made. I've got it made. I, I'm going to take over the family business because Jacob was wealthy. I'm going to take over the family business because I'm dad's favorite. And I drove the baguette. And I got the robe. Come on. His identity, his future, in his mind, was set. Let's see what happens. One night, Joseph had a dream. Tell the person next to you, do you have a dream? And in verse 5, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. Listen to this dream, he said. I can remember so many of us saying to our mom and dad growing up or determining in our hearts or telling our friends, I'm going to do this. Just wait till I'm big. Just wait till I work. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to make it to the top. I'm going to be the best. Hey? Connor, come here. I love picking on Connor. <laughs> you favored, eh? So, um, right. How old are you now? 18. Just a very short while ago, you were 17. Joseph, at this stage, was 17. 
just stay here. Okay. Then the father sends Joseph to go check out his brothers in the field. And they see him coming a far way off with his baguette. Okay. The dust clouds behind him. That sound. And of course, the technicolor robe. All right. So here comes Connor along in his baguette. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. In Genesis 37 verse 18, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. From the moment you say yes to Jesus Christ, from the moment you are born, God puts dreams in your heart for a purpose. And Satan determines from that moment on, he's going to destroy those dreams. Because the dreams that were birthed in your heart from young is what God put there for a purpose to expand his kingdom. Okay? Genesis 37, 23. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off his beautiful robe that he was wearing. They ripped off his identity. That which showed him as the favored. That's which he'd known all his life. They ripped it off him. They burnt up his baguette. Okay? And he must have been thinking, what's going on with him? Is this a bad joke? Is this a practical joke? Can you imagine? He's 17. He's 17. Just a few months ago, you were 17. So imagine your brothers grab you, the ones you love, the ones you, you feel safe with. And they rip you of your robe. They take everything that identifies you as Connor. It's ripped away. It's destroyed. Not only that, they threw him in a cistern, in a well. Imagine they take you. You rip from your family and they chuck you into a deep well. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. What this speaks about, when it says there's no water, it means spiritually, physically, in every aspect. There's shock, there's hopelessness, there's disappointment, there's disbelief. If that had to happen to you, Connor, how would you feel? Uh, not too lacquer, eh? Go. Not too lacquer. Give Connor a hand. Thank you. Not too lacquer. I think that's modern day for really, really fraught. I thought of some other words, but I can't say them, you know. So yeah, Joseph is in the pit. And he's looking up and he's thinking, what's going on? What have I done wrong? God, I've been faithful in every area I can think of. I've been the good son. I've loved. I've cared. I've obeyed my dad. This is a practical joke. And he's in the pit. And there's no water. There's no sustenance. It's lifeless. Everything. He knows. Somewhere up ahead, there's a faint light. Somewhere up ahead there, he's hearing some noise. And then he hears them plotting to kill him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what he went through? Some of you have had the dream. Some of you found yourself at the bottom of a pit. Some of you couldn't even see the light. And you thought there was no way out. But listen, 
God's given you a dream. I can actually picture this 17-year-old Joseph saying, God, what about the dream you gave me? What about the dream? What's going on? I'm going to be like the head of my family's corporate business. What about the dream? Psalm 40 verse 2 says, He brought me out of a horrible pit of tumult and destruction, out of the miry clay. That's what Joseph experienced. There was mud. It was miry, it was sticking to him, it was filthy, it was the dregs, and he was taken out. So then we skip on, we go to Genesis 37, verse 28. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him for 20 pieces of silver, and the traders took him to Egypt. So now there's Joseph in the well. And suddenly a rope comes down and he thinks, oh, the practical joke is over. I can go home to dad. I can just go home. I can have a lacquer bath. It'll be okay. And he gets pulled to the top and he thinks, now I'm out of this doing. And he gets to the top and he sees foreigners. He sees fierce looking people. The Midianites and the Ishmaelites were pretty fierce. Okay. And suddenly his hands are bound. And he's tied to the the line of slaves that are all chained together. And he must look back at his brothers and he say, Guys, what are you doing? What are you doing? God help me. What's going on? I don't understand. God help me. And they march across the desert to Egypt. Day in and day out. And I can see this young Joseph getting angry and bitter and disappointed and confused and thinking, I've got to wake up from this nightmare. I've got to wake up from this nightmare. God, the dream. God, the dream. God, you said. I don't understand. God, you said. And then he gets to Egypt. And they, they, when they sell slaves, they put them naked on display. He's stripped. Every form of dignity is gone. And he's put there on display for everybody to see his weakness and his nakedness and his brokenness. Some of us have felt like that when life happened. Okay. And he must have stood there and said, but God. But then along came a man. Let's carry on reading. Let's see what the Bible says. Uh, this uh, Genesis 39, verse 1 to 6. When Joseph was taken to Ishmaelites, Uh, taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelites traders. He was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So I always sort of pictured, okay, cool, he's arrived there. Now he's going to Potiphar's house, the captain's house. So he's going to work and do domestic labor. And it's going to be cool. He's in the palace, like a palace, because... He was the captain of the gods. He had a pretty big house, you know, maybe even one like in an Eagle Canyon kind of thing. But in those days, you know, a really nice house, lots of servants and slaves. Now he's a slave in this house. I used to think it was, yeah, not too bad. He can make it. But when I studied a little bit further, I found out that Potiphar was not just the captain of the gods. He was... Pharaoh's chief executioner. He was a hard, hard man. And the executioners in those days didn't just chop your head off. You were tortured, often until you died. 
and you were killed in the most horrific ways. And Potiphar was the chief executioner. And Joseph was given to him as a slave. No rights. He couldn't eat when he wanted to. He couldn't sleep when he wanted to. He couldn't even go to the loo when he wanted to. He had no rights. He was sold as the lowest of the lowest of the low. Seventeen years old. Let's carry on reading. Verse 2. But the Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. Joseph has become PA to the captain. Promotion. Okay. This pleased Potiphar, so he made Joseph personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From that day, Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property. The Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All of his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about the thing, except what was he going to eat for supper. Everything was sorted out. So I can imagine Joseph has worked hard. He's suffered maybe a couple of whippings. He's, he's toiled day and night, but he's done everything as if unto God. Because he knew a principle, what his dad had taught him, honor God. Honor God. And now he's built his way up. And I can imagine he's establishing his new identity. I'm the dude in the captain's house. Uh, I'm heading up. I'm running everything. It's like he was running his whole corporate business very, very well. He was the director, managing director of this big enterprise. He's got it made. And he must thinking, well, God, I, I can rebuild. I'm beginning to dream again. Maybe this is that dream, God. Maybe this is that dream that you gave me all those years back. Maybe this is that dream. Let's we skip a couple of things. Genesis 39, verse 19. Just before we go there, just hang on. So what happened was, uh, can I stand again? He grew into a strong, muscular, handsome man. Come on, Connor. Woo! All right. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> I love Connor. <laughs> and there he is. He's working. He's running. He's got certain amount of power and authority. And Potiphar's wife mm -hmm, checks him out. She checks him out and decides he's mine. And she tries to seduce him. But because Joseph had a, a, a principle of honoring God first, he said no. He fled from the very appearance of sin. So she grabbed his robe and he ran. He ran. And she was left with this robe. And then she went to her husband and said, oh, look what he did. He tried to rape me. Look, I got his robe. Because a woman's scorned. Oh, manna. That's dangerous. Okay, but you must understand, behind that was the dream stealer, the dream killer. And suddenly, this is what happened. 
Potiphar was furious. In verse 19 of chapter 39, when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. Lies. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. Some of you, unfairly, have been thrown into a state of prison. An emotional prison. A financial prison. A prison of hopelessness. He wasn't given chance to defend himself. He didn't have time to say, but, but it's a lie. Remember, Potiphar is the chief executioner. He's a mean dude. He could have been tortured and killed, but God. Say the word, but God. But God. So now he's flung into prison. And there he sits. I can see him. And look, their prisoners didn't have, the prisons those days didn't have TVs and beds. Okay? And on suites and, you know, there was a pit, a hole, if you needed to go to the bathroom, that many shared. There were rats. It was dirty and disgusting. And he sat there. It was dark and dingy. And he sat there. And he must have thought, God, have you forgotten me? Will I ever get out of this? He could have got bitter. He could have lost hope. He could have felt this is awful. I might as well just end it. But he had a dream. He had a God-given dream that sustained him the dark hours, the lonely hours, the confusing hours, when nothing made sense. He had that dream. And then um, uh, in Genesis 39, verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph in prison. And showed him his faithful love. God will show you his faithful love regardless of where you are in your life right now. It doesn't matter what phase you are in. God's faithful love is there. Then look what happens. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Come on now. And before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners. And over everything that happened in the prison, the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused him to succeed in all he did. So Joseph must have thought, well, okay, it might not be my father's business. And it might not be the enterprises in Potiphar's house. But, yeah, it's getting okay, yeah. I'm I'm doing it again. I'm making a success of things. Maybe this is my identity. This is what God's called me to be. Maybe this is it. And he begins to maybe settle a little bit. Except he has that dream. He has that dream. He can't let go of that dream. Because it's burning inside him. It's a reality that nobody can take away. Doesn't matter how hard Satan tries. That dream is there. So there's the butler and the baker in the story. You need to go read it. It's really cool. Don't just believe me. Go read it. And they have dreams. And he interprets the dreams. And they get the butler and baker get taken before Pharaoh and the dreams came to pass as Joseph interpreted. But before, look at what the Bible says. Um, Genesis 40 verse 14 to 15. This is just before the, the butler and baker are now released. And please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so that he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews. And now I'm here in prison and I've done nothing to deserve it. So there they go. 
And I can think, I pictured uh, uh, Joseph sitting there and thinking, maybe today's the day. Today they're going to appear before Pharaoh. To that day they're going to remember me. And the days come and the days go. And I, I sort of see him, I picture him sitting there at night, looking through a tiny little cell window and looking up at the stars and the moon, the little glimpse he can get. And he was saying, God, the dream, the dream, the dream. Two years later, he gets a call. Two years later, he gets a call. Pharaoh says, Come. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams for him. And in one day, one day, one moment at God's appointed time, Joseph goes from being a slave, a prisoner, a nobody, to second in charge of all of Egypt, the president of the country. Where are you? Where are you in your walk? Maybe today is the day that God's going to hear your cry and he's going to catapult you today into the place where your dreams become fulfilled. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's next week. Never, ever, 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 ever give up on your dreams. Tell the person next to you or behind you or in front of you. Never, ever, 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 ever give up. Joseph was 13 years a slave and a prisoner. He was in a pit with no water, a dry, confusing, heartbreaking time. He was betrayed. He was disappointed. He was in physical anguish. He had no rights. He was the lowest of the low. Every time he tried to build his life up and he thought, okay, now it's going somewhere. Has anybody had that experience? Now we're walking on the road. Now it's going to be better. And everything was pulled out from under him. Hmm. Then he tried again in Potiphar's house. Then he worked in the jail. Everything that was Joseph's identity was stripped away till there was nothing left but what God had said. Nothing left of who he was except what God said. And he gets up again. Some of you need to get up again. Some of you need to say, God, I've got to do this. He succeeds again in prison. I need to be forgotten for two years. Some of you, your two years are just about to be up. Some of you. I felt the Spirit of God saying to me to tell some of you the time's nearly up. The time when you're going to be promoted to the palace is about to break forth. Why? Because you have a dream. Go back to the dream God called you. Don't allow Satan to come with life and pressures to steal the dream God put in your heart. Because you know what? If Joseph had allowed his dream to be stolen, a whole nation of Israel would have died of starvation and Jesus Christ could not have been born in that lineage. We don't know what, why. Things are happening. We try and figure it out. We self-analyze. But God, but God, don't give up on your God-given dream. God is busy behind the scenes. God is busy working behind the scenes on your family, on your loved ones, or on your finances. Get back to the dream. Get back to the dream. Get back to the dream. Get back to what God called you to. Don't give up at the dream. Refuse 
to give up on that dream. You are in the place where it's one moment. One moment. Hold on to God. My baby. Amen. Amen. Sure. God is doing something in this time that is different to many other times of God operating. We've seen in the last 18 months so many things go wrong and so many things don't work out. And right now, there's apostles and pastors that are fighting for their life in ICU and churches that are not operating today because they're praying for their pastor. They're not even opening the service because they're praying for their pastor. He's in such dire need right here in Randburg. So we're going through hard times and we're saying, where's God? Where's our dream? Where's what he has promised us? And I want to talk to us, how do we deal with those hard times when it feels like that which God has said isn't coming true? And the first one that I want to look at is Job, and, and I'm going to not go into it too much depth because it's 40 odd chapters of suffering and 40 odd chapters of arguing with God in hard times. The actual only the hard times are described in chapter one, and the end result is described in the last chapter, but in the middle, there's all this arguing with God in the hard times. Let's just look at, at Job 2 and from verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. So he had already lost his children. He had lost all of his uh, donkeys and camels and sheep. Everything that he had of value had already been destroyed. And then on top of that, he gets so ill that he sits amongst the ashes and scratches himself with a piece of sharp pottery. So his whole body is full of sores and he is sitting in the ashes. So much so that in verse 9, his wife says to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Just give up the fight. It's not worth fighting. Leave what you have believed up to now because it's not helping you in this day of trouble. That's what his wife is saying. And that's obviously somebody he loves and she's going through this pain with him and she's just telling him, Job, there's no point of holding on anymore. There's no point in believing God for a miracle anymore. Just curse God and die because it's over. And so I want to say about the hard times that we're going through in these COVID times. It can affect every part of your life, but don't lose your integrity. Don't lose what God has said to you in this time. For 40 chapters, well, let's just before we get there. Then he replied, are you talking like a foolish woman? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. What you say in the time of trouble is very, very important. What you comes out of your mouth when you're under pressure is very, very important. You can sin by what you say in the times of trouble. So watch your mouth when you're in trouble. Watch your mouth when you're in trouble. Then his three friends arrived there, and they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. So they joined him in his trouble. And carry on the next verse. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, no one saying a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. So don't just think that as a Christian, you're never going to have trouble. Don't just think it's always going to be smooth. But I've seen people, I've seen pastors, I've seen congregation members, I've seen friends go through incredibly hard times 
and we have to keep our integrity as a church and as a Christian and as a people of God. We cannot only serve God in the good times. We cannot be somebody that has a word and a testimony in the good days. We have to have a relationship with Christ and be alive to Him in the hard days. So I won't go into the 40 chapters, but just imagine when it's so tough that your friends has no word to encourage you. Your friends has no thing to encourage For 40 chapters, they then say to him, well, you must have done something wrong. You must have messed up somewhere. It can't be that God is against you when you've done nothing wrong. So they change their tune a bit from a place of saying, well, it just let us sympathize to it's your fault. You must have done something wrong. What I want to bring out of Job is this, that sometimes hard times come just because of the season it is in. And we don't have to look for what our friends did wrong. We don't have to look at why it's happening. We just have to stand up. In the end, Job was restored. Do you know when? When he started praying for the very friends that attacked him. In the last chapter of Job, you'll see it. I'm not going to go into the scripture now because I'm rushing a little bit. I'm not going to be as elaborate as mom. You've got to go and read it and you've got to catch it. But don't let bitterness steal your dream from you. Because in that moment of heartache, in that moment of trouble, in that moment of accusation, your dream is at risk, not from the accusation, but from your reaction. From how you respond to the accusations, from how you respond to your very friends that's supposed to support you, who is making accusations against you. When he forgave them, you'll see it in the last chapter of Job, God restored to him everything that he lost. And that is why we have to keep an integrity and a clear conscience in the time of trouble. We cannot blame God. That's what Job was challenged all the time by his wife and by his friends and by himself saying, God, I have no argument with you, but what did I do wrong? Why is this happening? Why me, Lord? But he had to keep on coming back and saying, God, you are the sovereign one and I submit to you and I will choose to stay righteous in the midst of trouble. So congregation, I want to tell you in Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 10 to 12, it says this, but know this, verse 1, but know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. Sorry, verse 1, I apologize. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. It's got nothing to do with what you did or didn't do. It is just a fact of life that hard times will come. In verse 10, it says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine. And then he's telling you, what is my doctrine? It's my life is purpose. So you need to have purpose in your life to get through hard times. You won't get through hard times when you have no purpose. You won't get through hard times if you don't have faith. You don't get through hard times if you don't have long-suffering. In other words, you, you can take it and not fall apart at the first bit of suffering. You can stand through it. You can't make it through hard times if you don't have love. And you won't make it through hard times if you don't have perseverance. Unfortunately, this generation of Christians has lost their perseverance. And we have to stand up and saying we are committed to God. I believe 100% that God can heal. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've prayed for people and seen them be healed. But I don't stop believing in God if somebody passes away after I've prayed for them. Our perseverance is in the faith that God stays true to His Word if it's working or not. God's word is above every situation, and we don't change the Bible because we're going through a hard time. We keep going back to what God has said and stand up in the hard times. Not Joseph or Job, the reason that they stood through years and years of suffering and self-doubt and issues and trouble and those things. is because they persevered and kept what they came out of their mouth correct even though the situations were against them.
even though the situations made it look like the promise of God was false. Wasn't for us. And in these days, I can honestly say that sometimes I have doubted myself because it has been so hard to keep that perseverance when the hard times come. James 1 and verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Church, we've got to bulk up a little bit on our perseverance. We've got to bulk up and strengthen a bit on sticking it through tough days. I can be honest with you, in these days, our business has not worked. In these days, friends has turned against us with vengeance. So much so that there's been threats on our life because of things that hasn't worked. But has that changed the word of God? Has that changed the promises of God? Now I'm going to read a long piece of scripture. And when you get taught how to preach, they say, don't read a long piece of scripture. So I need you to help me to read this piece. I need you to look a little bit. I need you to say amen. I need you to grasp what God is saying. Because I'm not going to preach, I'm going to read a long piece of scripture. All right, is that okay? Do you understand that when somebody gets up here, they have something inside of them, and it's up to you to draw it out? You get what you draw out. If you don't interact with the preacher, you're going to get nothing. I was watching some of you while mom was preaching. You weren't drawing from the richness of what she was preaching. It was going straight over your head. Now I'm not going to preach. I'm just going to read. And it's going to be up to you about what you're going to hear. I'm convinced that any suffering we endure is less than nothing compared to the magnitude of glory that is about to be unveiled within us. The entire universe is standing on tiptoe, yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious sons and daughters. That means the whole of the universe is waiting for you to step into what God's got for you. The universe is standing on tiptoe. I'll jump a couple of verses just to save time. Verse 21. All creation longs for freedom from its slavery to decay and to experience with us the wonderful freedom that's coming from who? God's children. Are you a child of God? So freedom is to come from you. You see, the charismatic guys, and I'm a charismatic bone and marrow, it's part of who I am, has said there's no trouble coming. Whatever trouble you have, you're just going to pray and it's going to be solved. And unfortunately, that has created weak Christians. That has created Christians that the moment it goes tough, we fall over. We cannot afford to fall over in this time. You know what my message is to Christians at this time? Jesus didn't come to steal your brain because the Christians have become brainless. They have not got the integrity to study scientific stuff and process scientific stuff on its own because they're putting it into some Christian place where there is no reality. Jesus did not come to steal your brain. You are still, a, he's come to give you life and a clear conscience and a clear way of thinking. Whew, verse 23. And it's not just creation. We who have experienced the first fruit of the Spirit also inwardly grown as we passionately long to experience our full status of God's sons and daughters including our physical bodies being transformed. What did Timo share with us on Friday night, young people? That he prayed in tongues more than any of us. His, his secret of success was praying sometimes for eight hours in tongues. All of us were challenged. I don't know anybody who said, okay, well, you better shape up. I'm, I'm ahead of you in praying in tongues. But he challenged me and said to me, 
You're a weak Christian. You need to pray more in tongues because praying in tongues is going to change your life. Whenever he faced a challenge that he couldn't get through, he said, I'm praying in tongues. On, last night, I was standing right here praying in tongues. And I was thinking about what he said. And something came over me and I started praying in a new language. And the words came out in a different way. And I was groaning from the inside for the church, for the trouble that is coming, for the heartache of standing up and serving God while everything around you is falling apart. For this is the hope of our salvation. But hope means that we must trust and wait for what's still unseen. So that means that we have not arrived yet. There's still something more to attain. I preach that we as Christians can live as if we are in heaven here on earth. But I understand that there's still another level that's coming. And that is what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping and trusting and believing and waiting. And I'm excited for the next level. I have not arrived and I'm not everything sorted out. Nor are you. You need to push in. For why would we need hope for something we have already have? So because our hope is set on what is yet to be seen, we patiently keep on waiting for its fulfillment. In other words, in this life, things might still go wrong. In this life, you might still get sick. In this life, you're not going to always, just like this, have the victory. But I'm looking, and God is looking for Christians that will persevere, that will stand strong, and that will not be faltered because it's a tough day. We cannot say, God, I'll serve you if you do this. We have to say, God, I'm going to serve you irrespective if you do this or not, because my serving is not about the answered prayer. My serving is about you. As long as your serving is about the answered prayer, you're going to run into trouble. Your serving has to be about who he is and what he's making of you. It cannot be about the answered prayer. Verse 26, and the Holy Spirit takes hold of us in our human frailty to empower us in our weakness. For example, at times we don't even know how to pray and know the best things to ask for. But the Holy Spirit rises in, up within us in a super intercede on our behalf, pleading to God with emotional sighs too deep for words. You cannot go through hard times without the Holy Spirit. You have to say, God, how do I learn to pray in the way that I can pray in the way that you understand? That's deeper than what I can utter in my words. Because I lie awake at night and in pain and worry and suffering, saying, God, I don't know what to pray. But I can pray under my breath in tongues. And I can see God working. For God is the searcher of the heart, knows fully our longings. Yet he also understands the desires of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit passionately pleads before God for us. The Holy Ones, in perfect harmony with God's plan and our destiny. If you were Joseph, would you be able to pray, God, let Pharaoh have a dream so that I can explain it and I can become prime minister? While you're in jail and you've never even met the Pharaoh. You can't pray that. So you don't understand what your destiny is. So how do you pray in line with your destiny? In tongues, it's the only possible way. And this sermon is not about tongues. It's about persevering in the time of trials. But tongues is one of the tools to how you persevere. In perfect harmony with God's plan and our destiny. We have to come in harmony with God's plan. It's difficult in church when you is trying to go one way and there's somebody pulling in another direction. How much more difficult is it when God is trying to take you in one direction and you're pulling in another direction? We cannot, in our human strength, understand where God's taking us. What God has got planned for us, 
is totally outside of our plan. It's beyond that. It's on another level. And we have to come into harmony by coming into harmony with the Spirit. So verse 28, one of my favorite, favorite scriptures. I think mom asked me this on Friday. So we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together for good. Continually woven together for good tells me that God is sort of like adjusting his plan and working it out as we respond and as we do things and as things happen. So God is continually working out your plan for your good. God is busy taking you to a good place. Let's finish that scripture before I do all of it. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his design purpose. You're not called to fulfill your purpose. Your plan. Your dream. You're called to fulfill his purpose. That he has put in your heart. And it overrides everything that you might want to do. You lay down your plan at his feet and say, God, this is what I'd like to do. What do you want? What do you want? How do you want me to deal with this? What is on your heart for my plan? Not what's on my heart for my plan. Because, why? Because we call him Jesus, you are Lord. Not Jesus, you're my servant. Because that's what people think. I have a plan and I instruct Jesus to fulfill my plan. That's what charismatics think. So I'm preaching to myself. I'm not dissing charismatics. I'm saying we've got to understand that we have authority when we come into line with God's plan. And we hear from God and something rises up inside of us. And now we fight for that plan. But the moment you think that plan overrides what Jesus says. That's why anything can happen and we can still be in okay because we know he's still in charge. Our plan isn't our God. Our God is our plan. Does that make sense? Oh. The verse 13. Having determined our destiny ahead of time, he called us to himself and transferred his perfect righteousness to everyone who is called. And I'll stop there. He's transferred his perfect righteousness onto you so that you can fulfill his plan and destiny. He's made it possible for you to do what he's called you to do. With all your weaknesses, with all our failures, with all the things we do wrong. We don't say, well, I can't do this. I don't think I'm good enough. Because self-doubt is what Satan's weapon is at these difficult times. Makes you say, I'm not good enough. When this last round of attack came, I thought, well, maybe I should just resign as a pastor and step down. I'm not good enough to stand up here. I'm not good enough. How can I help other people if I can't even help myself? Then God said, it's not about what you've done or what you've achieved or how good you are. It's about me. It is about who I am. Then I get up here boldly and I say, guys, I'm weak. I'm struggling. I'm making mistakes. But I serve a God that is above that. And that's busy working it out in the midst of my mistakes. Are you getting something out of this? Can you relate to this process? Have you also sometimes feel unworthy or is it only me? Do you also feel when things go wrong that it's all your fault? And when the same thing goes wrong in your life more than once, you say, God, maybe I should never try anything again. Maybe it's better if I just go sit in a little heap in the ash like Job did and not bother anybody. Verse 31. If God has determined to stand with us, 
tell me then whoever can stand against us. Tell me who then could ever stand against us. For God has proved his love by giving us his greatest treasure, the gift of his son. You see, the son he's given us, Jesus Christ, is greater than your gifting. It's greater than your anointing. It's greater than your plan. It's greater than your character. So you might be weak and make mistakes and do not things perfectly. He's given us his greatest gift. That overrides everything of who we are. That steps and says, I want to shine through. I don't want Hannes to shine through. I want to shine through. And since God has freely offered him up as a sacrifice for us, he certainly won't withhold us anything else he has to give. Oh, Lord Jesus, I need a new anointing. I need a new mantle. I need something fresh to happen. He won't withhold it. Because he's already given you his most expensive. He's already given you his best. So he's not going to withhold the next thing you need. Verse 35, let's jump a little bit. Let's go to 34. Who then is left to condemn us? Certainly not Jesus, the anointed one. For he gave his life for us. And even more than that, he has conquered death and is now risen, exalted and enthroned by God at his right hand. So how could he possibly condemn us since he is continually praying for our triumph? Jesus is praying for your breakthrough. Start praying in tongues so that you can align with the prayer of Jesus. Start having perseverance that brings you in line with the prayer that Jesus has over your life. Don't you dare condemn yourself. Who could ever divorce us from this endless love of God's anointed one? Absolutely no one. Nothing in the universe has the power to diminish his love towards us. Troubles, pressures, and problems are unable to come between us and heaven's love. Have you allowed trouble to get between you and God? Have you allowed difficult times to separate you from the love of God? Well, God doesn't love me because look how things are going wrong. Look what I don't have. Look what somebody else has. He's got the Bugatti, you say? Or whatever else that somebody else does that you're thinking, well, I'm not getting that, so I'm not loved. Man, God has given you a much greater gift than what somebody else has. Brandon told us clearly that it's not about possessions. It's not about stuff. It's not about achievements. It is about Him. How can troubles and pressures or problems are unable to come between us and heaven's love? What about persecutions and deprivations and dangers and death threats? I have to go look up what deprivations is. I don't know what is deprivations. And it is depreciation. It's deterioration. Excuse me. It is corruption. It is perversion. How about persecutions, corruption, perversion, depreciations or dangers or death threats? No, for they are all impotent to hinder the omnipotent power of the love of God. It's impossible for any of these things that come against us to separate us from the love of God. They are impotent to hinder omnipotent love, even though it's written, All day long we face death threats for your sake. God, we are considered to be nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. Yet in the midst of all these things, we triumph over them all. For God has made us more than conquerors. And His demonstrated love is our glorious victory over everything. What are you facing today? That you need to tune into the love of God to get you over it. 
What is the thing that's holding you in jail? You see, we might not be in jail like Joseph was in reality. But we're in jail in our emotions. We're in jail when we think about victory. We're in jail of sickness. But God says, I'm getting you out of there. So now I live with the confidence that there's nothing in the universe that will separate us from the, with the power to separate us from God's love. I'm convinced that His love will triumph over death, life's trouble, fallen angels, or dark rulers in heaven. There's nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken His love. What have you gone through that made you feel unloved? What have you gone through that has made you feel that God has not got you? I'm saying to you, there's nothing that you can do or that can happen to you that can weaken God's love for you. You see, Joseph, Job, Paul, yes, come up, please, Brandon. They all suffered. And they didn't have a perfect life. Nothing or everything didn't just go right every single day. I know there's people here whose livelihood is under threat, whose place to stay is under threat, whose health is under threat, whose lost loved ones. But none of that, none of that separates you from how much God loves you. None of that can make you be a second-class citizen. You're still God's beloved. You're still the favorite, like Joseph was the favorite. Because it's not about any of those things. They stood firm in their love of God, understanding that God will lead them through, and that Jesus is being formed inside while we go through the suffering. You see, if when you're in the suffering, run to Him, and you're praying, and you're getting to church, and you're getting to a place where you can be encouraged, something forms, something shapes. I'm not averse to hard times, because it draws me closer to Him. And that is the greatest desire I have in my life, is to be close to Him. And if possessions and success and achievements pulls me away from Him, then I'll rather have hard times then I'd rather have hard times because I am more determined to be close to Jesus than anything else. But when the things become bigger than you feel about yourself is based on stuff, they own you. You don't own them. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I want to open the altar call. You sitting here and you're saying, you know what? I've gone through a hard time. I'm at the end of my terror. I don't know how to stand anymore. I don't know how to find Jesus in this difficult time. I don't know if I still love him because I'm not even sure if he loves me. I have come through this place and, and I, I've so hard fighting to survive that I've actually parked Jesus to one side. Then I want to say, come up to this altar call this today. And come and say loud out so that everybody in heaven and on earth can see that you are committed to get through this time close to Jesus. That is your only issue, is your relationship with Jesus. Everything else is irrelevant. Because if you're staying in tune with Him, He's going to work out your plan in any case. But if your plan becomes your God, Nothing's going to work in any case. So I've opened this altar call. While Brandon prays, plays for us, I'm going to pray. I'm going to close my eyes. And I'd like you to come up. And a bold declaration to saying, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though I've lost so much, I am saying that Jesus is going to carry me through. I'm making a bold statement. It's not a today about my prayer. It's about the statement that you make. It is about the declaration that you make by coming up here and saying, Jesus, you've got me. It's 
not about the lost job or lost business or lost friends or lost family. It is not about the heartache. It is about the one who carries us through. Oh, yendara naka shanduru noko shikatara nanga yetaka. Oh, Jesus, let this word stir deep inside of us that perilous times can never, ever, ever take us away from who you are. Accusations and threats and sickness and hurt and disappointment. Oh, shendara naka shukotoro nongo yetaka wakayeta. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This is your day. This is the day that God is changing you. Jesus, I'm putting you first. Father God, I'm putting you first. Fill us, Lord God. Fill us, fill us, fill us. Father, I can't lay hands on people today. Because of COVID, we're respecting the government, Lord God. But I believe that your spirit is moving down this line and stirring deep on the inside and dreams that have been given up with and hope that has been lost and direction that has come to nothing. Disappointments and self-doubt and tiredness and pain and tears. We put them all down on the altar today, Lord God. Just like Job did and said, I will keep my integrity in the midst of the hard times. I will keep knowing that you will see me through even though I can't see any plan. Like Joseph there in the jail, not knowing how you're going to get him out and thinking that there is no answer. You still had him. Lord God, we make a bold declaration today that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing will keep us away from what you are doing. And we declare that boldly out to anybody who wants to listen. If you are on the online one and you're standing in your home and you're going through some of these things and you're saying, how do I ever reach what God's got for me? then I want to say to you today, God's love is greater than your trouble. And God will see you through. And I'm praying for you right now for that kind of encounter. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. We hope that you enjoyed today's message. Our services are streamed live on our Facebook page every Sunday morning at 9.30. For more information and resources, please go to our website, www.frontlinecitychurch.co.za or look us up on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube.